A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Friday with Friends and I have Sarah Scarfon. She's written a comprehensive book called Holding Space and takes us through a step-by-step investigation into how the words, tone, volume, as well as the intention of our speech meld together to create communication. This is for yoga teachers, since she is a yoga teacher herself and also has an acting background, but everyone can benefit in learning how to communicate better, use their voice, and find their breath. I hope you enjoy Sarah as much as I did. Welcome, Sarah. Good to have you on today. Thank you. So let's launch right in. You have recently written a book called Holding Space, the Creative Performance and Voice Workbook for Yoga Teachers. And I so enjoyed looking through this because I have been a yoga teacher and doing teacher trainings for 10 years. And some of the, so much of what you bring up in the book resonates because you can have all the knowledge but if you don't present yourself well with your voice and all the words you say, uh, it really doesn't land as well. It's not as effective. How did you get to the place where you knew you were going to write a book? So can you tell the listeners like what your background is and what brought you to this space? And secondly, if you can remember this, I'd love to know the title, like how you came up with holding space, because typically that that is an emotional type term, but this is emotional as well. But I'd love to know more about your um, your choosing of that. Great. Thank you. I like these questions. Uh, let's see. The beginning is that my background is in theater and most of my adult life has been a variety of theater work and training or yoga work and trainings, some somatic practices, dance. Um, body work. So I had this background already as an actress and I had studied directing and done some work as a director. 
And that background of being comfortable on stage in front of people, being able to work with my voice, to, to know my voice, to know how to use it well, all of that from my acting background and my theater work just naturally came out and was so, so helpful when I started teaching yoga. And then when I started to mentor other teachers or think about teacher training elements, I started to realize that a lot of new teachers or even experienced teachers are not rising to their own potential because they don't have any awareness of how to use their voice, how to present their their best side in a sense, so that they can literally just be seen and heard and understood. And so much of that really comes into the emotional title of holding space because most of what's underneath us being heard and being comfortable being seen comes from our confidence, the belief in ourselves that what we're saying is a value, that our teaching is a value, and that there's really a point to it. So part of what I started doing with yoga teachers in London through teaching workshops was almost like coaching or directing an actor where I'm helping people to get out of their own way so that they can shine outward. So that was that was something that started, I think it was about 2013 that I started teaching workshops and for yoga teachers. And at that time, I was calling them authentic voice, find your authentic voice. And I was doing that primarily with Yoga Campus in London, which is a great school and training program that I still work with. And then I was approached by a publishing company, Singing Dragon. And they wrote me an email and said, are you interested in turning your workshop into a book? And before then, I had never thought about writing a book. And so this was a really new project for me. Definitely the most writing I've done since I was in university. Well, I love it because it's it's a book that goes into the elements of what is voice, the anatomy of the voice. And I'm really, as a physical therapist, really into functional anatomy and teaching about the anatomy of the body. But like you, it's not just the mechanics. It's what you convey and, and all you said, the emotional part, your own confidence in how you hold yourself in your body, how you project your voice. There's such parallels with that. And what I really loved is how you first start off with talking about posture, because posture for me is huge. It's your starting line of how you, and it it is, of course, from a neuromuscular standpoint, it sets the stage for the potential for movement and how you move, how your muscles are ready to fire or not, if you're not in the best posture. But from a voice perspective and from a confidence perspective, it's huge as well. So one thing I work on with teachers is learning how to really stand tall. Like it sounds so weird and we talk about this in yoga, but taking up that space. So we talk a lot about the neurophysiological effects of standing tall, of of taking up the space, especially as women. You know, if you're familiar with the work of Amy Cuddy, she's really looked at this and the differences between men and women. A lot of that is that conditioning. Women will make themselves smaller physically, and that's that's representing their emotional state as well. 
And so, but I hadn't really thought about so much of the voice. I talk a lot about language, about filler words and all of that. But I found immediately in my trainings that there was such a diverse representation of voice quality. And what I've seen a lot of is, of course, it represents your own confidence. So do you tell people, like, kind of fake it till you make it in a way? And or is it through these these wonderful, that the other thing I loved about your book is you have practical applications. Do you go, where do you start? Well, you start with posture and then do you go into the practical applications? And if people are really not confident, how do you get them out of it in that acting background way? I think that the first step is to have fun and be playful. Amen. Amen. I feel like yoga world, I, I've been in it for 25 years and I was always like, why are we so serious in yoga? It's like crazy. It's like you feel like you're walking into church or synagogue or something and it's, and you have to, you know what I mean? It's just, it's like, it was so weird. So when I actually made some people laugh, especially in New York, when I used to do workshops there, they were so serious. And I think that was, again, that kind of mentality was that yoga you was this, you know, very spiritual experience and you had to have reverence for it. But joy and laughter is part of being reverent. It's it's actually necessary. Yeah, it, it is for me. If the atmosphere is too heavy, then there's no space for anything spontaneous to arise. And so if we're working on being present to our experience as humans having a, you know, the spiritual experience in the human body, how can we be open to the actual experience of what's happening in reality if we're fixated on seriousness and heaviness? It just, it doesn't work for me. So I, I definitely love bringing some lightness. I think it helps, especially in group work. And if they're, if I'm working one-on-one with someone, humor can also be helpful because often whether it's a physically challenged issue that someone is dealing with they you know they really want to get into a posture and we're trying to build the muscular connections for that to happen or if you know the body is revealing some kind of emotional memory we need to be able to be grounded for our students and to be able to crack jokes sometimes if it feels right absolutely so part of that earlier question you had about how to free ourselves up, especially teachers that are not accustomed to doing creative work or doing anything that might push the boundaries of what they feel comfortable doing as an expressive art. I think that playfulness and finding out what is actually fun and then pushing the boundaries. So first we have to be inquisitive. What do I actually like to do? And can I try something new? So I use a lot of improvisation exercises in my workshops. In the book, I've got a lot of really interesting ones that you can do by yourself. That was definitely a challenge because most theater improvisational exercises are between two or more people. So I got some fun, really individual exercises that you can do to start just freeing your creative sparks and making some space to have more fun. There was another part of your question about reverence. And I think that in order to give our students the capacity to really understand that 
sacredness can be in every moment and that the spiritual connection to our daily posture is just as important as the postures we're doing on the yoga mat. I think part of that comes from normalizing what we're doing and and that helps to take the heaviness out of it, to lighten the room so that people will practice also playfully. Absolutely. Right. Because then they're, they're freer. There's not like a perfect way of doing a pose or transitioning into a pose, but more like you said, an attention and grace in paying attention moment to moment. And that kind of frees you up if you're not thinking like there's an end all be all, but there's just, what does this feel like today? You know, and it's going to feel different probably every time you're on the mat. And that's what I love about the yoga practice is it, it, it helps us create the practice of paying attention to do that off the mat as well. Exactly. That's really the main goal of my practice and a lot of my teaching. And that ties in so well with basically the philosophy of improvisation, which is yes. And so whatever's happening, whether it's that, you know, today your hamstrings are quite tight or you woke up in a bad mood, how does that influence your practice? It's the same mentality that you would take into playing a scene with someone. What is that scene partner going to give you? How do you play with that so that you are in the moment, whether that's on the stage or on the mat? I really started to find that this was all coming together for me. And, um, and that was personally really rewarding because instead of feeling that I had two worlds, the theater world, which culturally can feel very different from the yoga world, you know, and then to start to see where they're blending and bringing them together. And I've been crossing over, bringing some of the yoga work to the theater world and vice versa. Oh, I think that's wonderful. So my husband has a background in theater. He was a professional actor for 10 years. And we always had an idea the idea that I would bring him into my teacher trainings to do some of this type of work. And when I was talking about fake it till you make it, I was kind of thinking like in acting, you can take on a different personality. So someone who's really not projecting well, you can see that they're very tentative about like taking up space, telling them to pretend like they're, you know, some big personality, whether it's Elvis or somebody else. And like, just say, take that on and be be all this today, you know, how would he respond or she or whoever you choose. And in doing that, you kind of break down some of those habits of playing smaller or whatever your conditioning is. Do you do things like that where you have like kind of role playing? We do in the workshops. I do some similar things. I don't necessarily ask yoga teachers to take on uh, a character or a persona, because I don't feel like most of them are are quite ready for that. What I do is I offer something that I learned in some acting classes, which is personification of the students. So for instance, one of the hardest things for most teachers, even really experienced teachers, is to use a relaxing type of voice, a voice that's calming, for instance, for Shavasana or meditation, and yet still be heard in a large room with a large group whenever we're back to large rooms and large groups. So if you don't have a mic, how do you get the person at the other side of the room to hear you when it's not appropriate to be, you know, screaming? Cheerleader-like, right. 
So I saw that you really like restorative a lot, which I also love. You know, I really had so many just parallel, like, oh, I get her, I get her, because, you know, restorative was developed by a physical therapist, really understanding the parasympathetic nervous system. And people will ask me about yin, and I have a very different opinion about yin. But I say, if you want to calm down the nervous system, go full throttle and do restorative. But as a teacher, I sometimes will joke, I almost, you're almost like a, a flight attendant who's like, here's your blankets, here's this. There's, there's a lot of taking care of the positioning. And then uh, I, I'm especially curious what you do virtually teaching restorative. Like you said, how do you, for me, it's more natural, but I know for a lot of people, how do you hold the attention of people who are in fact relaxing? They're not in Shavasana, so there's not this full quiet. You want to speak a little bit and instruct a little bit, guide a little bit so that you're holding a little bit of their attention. I'm just curious how you do that in person and virtually. Well, it's it's going to depend on how many people are there in person for sure. In a large group, when I want my voice to be, how shall I put it, creating a quiet atmosphere, I still need to project my voice to the other side of the room. So I personify my students by imagining them as little children that I want to take a nap or calm down. So that's the kind of creative work that's more from the acting world that I offer to yoga teachers. And equally, if someone's really nervous and feeling shy or insecure, imagine that the students in front of you are your best friends or whoever's really on your team. And and not just look at them and try to tell yourself that that is them, but close your eyes for a moment and visualize the people that inspire the feelings in you that you need to bring to your voice, whether that's a little more power or whether that's, I need to make my voice calming in this moment. So if I hold in my mind's eye to the point where I actually have an emotional or physical reaction where I can feel the feelings in my body, then that is for sure going to come out through the voice. And if I'm faking it and I don't feel it in my body, then the voice gets this inauthentic kind of fakeness that, ugh, that really grates on my nerves. So I'm, I'm really hoping to coach people to look for what inspires the feeling within them that's going to give their voice an authenticity, because I do think the students' nervous systems are going to respond to that. I totally agree. Yeah. With the restoratives, you know, once I have my students in the pose, I am doing my best to be quiet and give them silence. I study and and assist Judith Hanson Lassiter. So I really go with quiet as being one of the, the main elements of restorative yoga. While I'm talking people into the pose or out of the pose, um, if I want to start winding things down and I'm repeating myself so that I may be just giving instructions to a few people and other people are already in the pose, then I might lower my voice and in an ideal world, use someone's name. Like, Laura, can you take the blanket a little bit closer to your right knee? I don't know what it would be. So that the others are not getting the signal that they need to perk up and listen. And I would change my voice so that I'm focusing on you when I speak to you. And that really creates a direction for the voice that doesn't alert the whole group. 
in mm. the same way as if I say blanket closer to the right knee. <laughs> right, right. But in uh, the beginning, I do, I do try, especially with the restoratives, to be very clear in the beginning that these are the instructions and then the quiet is the time in the pose. Mm, beautiful. So I have a couple of questions about kind of specific things that I've seen, and I would love to hear your response to them because I, I know that, you know, things that I've in, encouraged. One is the, the instructor that takes a yoga type voice. So I probably like you, I'm very sensitive to voices and some people naturally have an, a kind of nicer melodic voice than others, but I really, I get cringy when people take on this yoga voice. And I, and I think a lot of it is, is a confidence thing they, that, that there's some voice where there's no expression and right. Or they're really like flourishy, you know, it's like not authentic, you know, like this very and breathe in, exhale, you know, this kind of yoga ish voice. I know that one. Yeah. Right. So with that, I, what would you say to somebody who is really speaking that? And you just were like, Oof, let's rework that. I would. If I was one-on-one or in a workshop where I'm working with them, I would do some physical exercises to see if I could get them to shift their voice where it's placed in their body so that they could actually hear their voice coming out from a different place. And I would most likely in terms of the inflection, so inflection where we raise our voice or lower our voice and pitch, most of the time, if we're asking a question, we go up at the end. And so I call attention to typical inflection patterns. And then I would ask us to play with that. So to really make yourself do the opposite. So if your tendency is to go, mm, breathe in, then I might say, okay, can you, can you literally do the opposite as an exercise for yourself? And that might help to break a pattern that they could have created. And maybe it does come from a lack of confidence or a lot of times we, especially with our vocabulary, when we learn something from a teacher, we start to just emulate exactly what we heard. And that's fine. That's a growing pattern. That's how we learn. We copy first and then hopefully there's a stage after copying where you make it your own, you add from your own experiences and that's where it's going to change and become what I think marks a really integrated teacher. Yes, I agree. And I think you were speaking to the other part, the other thing, which is the sing-songy voice, which is that up and down and also often ending on the and now you're going to da, da, da. and you know it's this and so with people that are doing that i think it's also kind of a nervousness and or a pacing so it's almost like that's how they're keeping time is like a metronome and so they go up and down and up and down um and it is i don't, i don't think people really can appreciate teaching of any kind but teaching when you're also you're teaching movement there's multiple things happening you may or may not have music on you are remembering what you want to teach. So you're anticipating. There's a, I always say, like it gives you the most amount of energy teaching because you're firing on all cylinders. And so I think sometimes the voice just is a way of kind of keeping, keeping track. So it is a more sophisticated step to then 
not do the thing song of voice. And I like how you said, just think about, listen to yourself. This is the other thing. It's like watching yourself and listening to yourself. Yeah, that's one of the main exercises that I ask everyone to do. Listen to your own class, do your own class. Not as a way of being hypercritical and feeding the you know, inner judgment that we all have going on at different times, but really to notice some simple things such as, oh, we did that pose for three extra breaths on the right side and not on the left, or to notice other things such as, wow, I have a funny inflection and I don't know why I'm doing that. And then to change the pattern, first we have to be aware of what we're doing. And then we have to find the playfulness. If we're stuck in that dark, critical, I'm horrible, this sounds awful, I hate my voice. If, if that's where we're at, and it goes the same for our body image and the way we feel about our face and our appearance when we're watching ourselves on camera, we are now with Zoom, we're so often on screen. So we have to get comfortable looking at the recording and the image of ourselves. So finding the playfulness and finding the people that are really your true cheerleader so that you have people you can call up on those days and go, oh, I just did my own class and I am feeling awful or whatever it is you're feeling because all of us as teachers go through that up and down, probably at different points in the career, it's not like one day it's over and you're over it. <laughs> then you're suddenly always comfortable with your voice and your appearance or the things you say when you're teaching. It's a, it's a constant practice. And that's what I really hope people get out of the book is that there are two things going on when we become yoga teachers, hopefully. One is we have our own practice. And two is we have now the practice of teaching. So if I think about the the definition of yoga from the sutras, uh, the idea of pratyahara, withdrawal of the senses. If I'm really withdrawing from my senses, then I'm unable to be in contact with my students. So I can't actually be doing my own yoga at the same time as I'm teaching my class, unless I shift my perspective about what is this practice. And I think the practice of teaching is its own art or craft that we can work on and grow in the same way that we develop a yoga practice. Absolutely. I love that. So for the people who aren't yogis that are listening, what are some tips you could give them in terms of better breathing, better voice quality, some of their own practices? Because we all talk in life. We all Maybe we're not teachers, but we certainly are communicators. What are some tips you would offer more to the general public, not only on, on, on that voice quality, but on better breathing and how all of these are connected? I think the first thing we need to be aware of for uh, improved lung function is posture. So often we sit or stand in a way that we're literally compressing our abdomen, our rib cage, like I'm, I'm starting to do it now on camera to do the example and it feels horrible. So literally we need to find a way to move as with the bodies we have so that there is space for natural breath function. I'm really again about 
create a posture where there's space for the breath to occur rather than I want you to count to three as you inhale, pause for 2.5. I'm not about those kinds of techniques because I think they create more mental stress. And mental stress or upregulating the nervous system is going to the opposite effect. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's going to shorten our breath. And, and the same, actually, if we're not breathing easily, then we're building up more CO2, which actually feels in the body, like the emotion of anxiety. So we could be triggering anxiety simply because we're not breathing well. That's funny because I, I totally, you know, am like, yes, because I spend so much time on posture because people don't realize how much posture does affect their breathing capacity. And like you, like you said, if you work on that and then work on an engaged core and understanding when it needs to be upregulated, like when you're doing something that is more challenging for the whole body and it has to hold your skeleton and all that, it really needs to be able to come together. I don't really do in min- for so many years now, I don't do sitting pranayama because I found it very ineffective for people. Like you said, I found that it actually shortened their breath. And I'm sure other people would not agree with us, but this is what I found. And I, in, in what you said, I really appreciate that, that if it kind of takes some of the load off, like, Hey, if you focus on your posture, you're going to, you're going to improve your breath. You don't even have to actually really, you know, pay attention and work on it specifically. Because uh, I'm not saying that's going to be easy because, you know, a lot of people are living in a lot of anterior tilted with an anterior tilted pelvis. And that has, you know, that shifts the way your diaphragm can move, shifts the way your transverse abdominals can contract, your pelvic floor, all the parts that contribute to better, fuller breathing. And so I think that is a great message for yogis and non-yogis that, yeah, if you have a breathing practice, pranayama practice, meditation that has breathing in it that works for you, great. But don't feel like you have to have a breathing practice per se. If you improve your your posture, you're going to improve your movement and you're going to improve your breath with that. Yeah. And I think taking the time to figure out how what postures you can take, whether you're doing restoratives, using a lot of props, or simply lying on the floor without any props, sitting however you want to be so that you can feel your breath and also to feel the pelvic floor, not to do a Kegel exercise and tighten it, tighten it, because actually most yogis and most people, as I'm starting to be more aware of that, have tension in the pelvic floor. That affects the voice directly and that affects the the bigger diaphragm. And if we are able to really relax the abdomen then the breath can come deeper into the body. The pelvic floor and the diaphragm will move in tandem together naturally without having to force grip or challenge our muscles to make it happen. And I really think that so many of us have trained our abdomens to be flat and sucked in as a, as a cultural aesthetic choice that maybe we haven't made that choice Uh And I think that that is one of the problems with a lot of our now, a lot of our inability to breathe well, because we're so tight. This is where language comes in. Like, I think I specifically avoid the word suck your belly in because that has such a habitual trigger to do like what you said, like pull it just straight back. 
when it is a lot more sophisticated to that. There's there's the weaving of abdominal muscles that gather and hold. And I always want people to think more about supporting your bones. So going closer to the bones and supporting kind of on all sides, we have a posterior abdominal wall as well as this front. And like you were saying, Sarah, if you are just sucking your belly in, you're pushing that breath up into the chest. And that's like that kind of fight or flight sympathetic nervous system response. So for anybody who, yeah, yeah. Yeah, stop the movement of the diaphragm or the pelvic floor, stopping the the spontaneous, like healthy movement and stopping the breath from being as deep as the lungs, as the lung capacity is. And I think that's why I really agree with you about pranayama, specific yoga breathing practices, the ones that can be done lying down where you change the relationship to gravity and it's more accessible for people to relax the abdominal cavity and all the different structures there. I think that's when we start to understand what what is our natural breath rhythm? How does the breath automatically begin to downregulate the nervous system when we let it come into a, a longer, slower way of being? And, and then at some point we can take that into a more upright position. And with yoga postures, you know, all of this, whether to relax, whether to engage so much just depends on our relationship to gravity. What are we doing in that pose? Exactly. I call that the adaptability factor that we want our, our brain so uh, well wired and intelligent that it can make those fine tuning adjustments. And sometimes we, as you, you know, reform your posture and improve it, those will naturally, you'll have to pay more attention. But over time, your brain will be so set up to make those decisions for you. So speaking of yoga, outside of restorative, what are, just for fun, I'd love to know, what are like three of your go-to favorite poses? Outside of restorative, what are my yeah. go-to poses? I do love downward facing dog, Adamoka Shonasana. I think it gets a bad rap because it's become like the poster child for yoga in a way. Right. But I really, I love it. I, I do love too. A lot of forms. I love it with a brick under my forehead. I love it, you know, kind of a Yangar style with a rope around my femurs so I can really let go and hang with it. So I like it in so many forms. And what else do I love as just a go-to pose? Um, child's pose. I like, I like flowing between cat and child's pose to release the lower back. I like, uh, I, so many of the poses I really love are, are modifications. They're not like classical. I like Johnny Shirsasana as an example, but with my pelvis at an angle and more as a lateral stretch, <laughs> like really working for the QL to be released. Um, things like that. I love that. I love it. More like that have, a, again, a functional um, carryover into the areas of tightness, like the back fascia, how you can release that in down dog. And um, it's so powerful also to get really grounded with your hands in down dog. I think that it's just so lovely. Well, this was wonderful. Where can people find more out, um, about you and purchase the book? The book is really delightful. I so enjoyed it. I just really flew through it. Because it's, it's both, it speaks to the scientific part of me, but it also speaks to uh, the 
emotional component, and then some real practical um, applications with good pictures, lots of great pictures in there um, for how to get into so many of those poses, especially those restorative poses that are just so lovely. So where can people find where to purchase the book and, and any other information about you? Well, you can find me through my website, sarahsharf.com. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook. If you do Sarah Sharf Yoga, you should find me. And the book you can order directly from the publisher in the US or the UK, singingdragon.com or good old Amazon. Or if you have a local bookseller, they can order it for you if you want to support a local business. And people here in Vienna can order it directly from me. I'm not really in the shipping books around the world service, but if someone's really looking for my autograph, then I might make an exception if you email me. Okay. I'd love to know where, how you ended up in Vienna. <laughs> yes. Okay. And then I remembered a question you asked at the start that I never got to. Okay. So the, the quick version is I moved to London to get my master's degree in physical theater. And when I was studying in London, I met a man that I fell in love with. Then we got married and he happens to be an Austrian. Got it. We lived in London for a while and then we chose to move to Vienna because it's a much more friendly place to raise a child. I love it. I've never been, but it's absolutely like top of my list because my mother, it's like one of her favorite cities in the world. Yeah. If you ever get out this way, it would be great to meet you in person. I would love to. Whenever we're traveling again, I'm going to so many places. I'm not going to hold back. <laughs> I relate to that feeling. But just to, to bring it back to the one of the first questions you asked me, how did I come up with the title Holding Space? One reason is because I do think that what we're working at as yoga teachers is holding space, not only for our students, but also for ourselves to develop this process of becoming the best teachers that we can be and integrating the parts of ourselves into our teaching. And the other reason is that one of my favorite books from the theater world is called The Empty Space. So it's kind of like a little theater nerd. <laughs> I love it. I love that. I, lo- I Really, it's such a beautiful title and it's a beautiful book. And so I'm really honored to have you on here and I hope everybody goes out and checks out more about you in the book. So thank you for your time. And best of luck. I hope to meet you sooner than later. Yes. All right. Take care. And for all of you out there, as always, I'm pulling for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.